The Bob Murphy Show, episode 218. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I'm going to be interviewing Carrie Baldwin, on the controversial topic of abortion, but from a libertarian perspective. So among her other accomplishments, Carrie recently debated Walter Block at the Soho Forum on this issue. So Walter was presenting his evictionism stance and Carrie was offering, well, she was against evictionism and she was against pro-choice, but she's also not a conventional pro-lifer. So I won't anticipate her position. It's somewhat nuanced. So I'll just defer that to the interview for you to see what her exact position is. Carrie is an independent researcher with a BA in philosophy from Arizona State University. She's a co-author of the book, Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. And so listeners may recall back in episode 214, I had two of the co-authors of that book, Doug Stewart and Dick Clark on, and we intentionally on that episode didn't discuss abortion because they said, now Carrie wrote the material in the book on that topic. So have her on separately. So that's what we're doing now. Carrie's writing focuses on libertarian philosophy and reformed theology and is aimed at the educated layperson. Her podcast, Dare to Think, as well as her writings are available at her website, mereliberty.com. So without further ado, here is my interview with Carrie Baldwin. Well, Carrie, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate that. So let, let me just mention for the people watching on YouTube, I have a tie on because I just did a, a business show interview and I thought, you know, what, I'm just going to say dressed up, you know, it's, we can't always just be dressed down. So that's the reason I'm mentioning it is I got all dressed up for my Jordan Peterson interview. And then some people were offended because I hadn't, I just had a polo shirt for someone else's interview. And so the people start <laughs> thinking like that. So I just want to be clear. Okay. So, um, I had had, uh, Dick Clark on earlier, we're talking about faith seeking freedom and Doug as well. And we purposely didn't talk about the big issue when it comes to the intersection of American Christianity and libertarianism, which is abortion, because they said, you got to have Carrie on, you know, this is her area. And so that's what we'll do. And of course, you also debated Walter Block on this. So, you know, I, I watched that, of course, but just We'll, we'll try to keep it so that our discussion here, Carrie, you know, someone doesn't have to have already listened to that sure. um, in order to make sense of this. So before we dive into that, though, can you just give us a little background on, um, you know, how did you get into Christian libertarianism? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I got into libertarianism, like most people, by way of Ron Paul way back in his uh, 2008 presidential campaign. It was... Some years after that, that uh, I found the Libertarian Christian or the precursor to the the Libertarian Christian Institute. I always forget what exactly they they called it. So I'd been following them since since their early days, and my exploration of libertarian philosophy happened to parallel nicely with 
my own independent study of Reformed theology in particular. So that's that's Calvinism. And I just started seeing a lot of, you know, common ground between the two and eventually started really thinking about them in conjunction together. I eventually started my own blog called mereliberty.com. That was, gosh, way back in 2014. And just trying to you know, find my find my feet in that I eventually started working on a libertarian view of abortion. LCI got, you know, wind of that, noticed what I was doing, and so invited me on as a contributor. And so at any rate, after that, and by the way, I do have a bachelor's degree in philosophy that I earned from Arizona State University. Previously, my previous I mean, I'm. other than that, I was a stay-at-home mom for 12 years, but I was in the Air Force, served in the Air Force as a medical lab technician, so I've got some science background as well. But at any rate, it was uh, really after I started focusing more on a libertarian view of abortion that I came up with an application for self-ownership and the fetus. And it was shortly after that that Gene Epstein found me and invited me to debate Walter Block. So that's sort of the the uh, the short version. Okay. All right. So as, as I mentioned to you, Carrie, but I'll explain this to the listeners. I'll be hitting you disagreeing from the perspective both of a, let's say, a, a, a non-libertarian American Christian and then also from a either agnostic or atheistic uh, standard libertarian position. So first, let me do the, the latter. I'll be Walter Block for a moment and just briefly rehash his position. So his position is what he calls evictionism. And he says... Uh, Technically, that and, and Rothbard said this too. That when the the idea or the debate over when does life be, when does human life begin, is sort of irrelevant. It doesn't matter if I come downstairs in the morning and there's some guy that I don't know in my kitchen eating food out of my fridge. I have every right to say get off my property. Now, and this is the nuance that Walter Block brings. He's not merely a conventional pro-choice person because he's saying what you can't do is just grab a kitchen knife and stab the guy to death and then drag his corpse off. Like first, you have to announce, get off my property and give him a chance to do so. Or if you found someone sleeping, that's probably a better analogy, on your, you know, on your kitchen floor, you couldn't first kill the person and then drag the corpse off. You would you know, try to evict the person from your property without killing them. And so Block says, likewise, when it comes to a fetus that the mother does not want or in her body, she has every libertarian right to eject it, to remove it from her property, namely her own body. She can't just kill it willy-nilly. It, it's unfortunate, though, with current technology, in many cases, that would mean the death of the fetus. But Block says, hey, in the year 2100, if you, know, if you pro-lifers out there just adopt my position of evictionism, as technology improves, there'll be fewer and fewer deaths caused to fetuses because they will be removed. The mother will not have the right to order them to be killed. And then we'll keep them alive, you know, with medical technology and then find a, you know, adoptive family form or what have you. So what's your um, response to that? So it's a couple of things. Our primary disagreement is on pre-viable eviction because he and I both agree that after viability, the mother is on the hook for finding some suitable alternative. In his case, he's talking about like artificial womb technology. So really our disagreement has to do with pre-viable eviction. I argue that the fetus is not a trespasser. It doesn't qualify as a trespasser because in all trespassing cases, the trespasser originates from somewhere other than the property in question. 
And that's true whether they've, you know, physically crossed a boundary or they've unconsciously been dumped. Um, or, you know, even if we came into a, a possibility of like a, um, you know, transporter situation like you see on Star Trek. Mm. Every trespassing situation is where, you know, somebody is coming from one property to another that is not their own. And so my objection to that is that um, the fetus doesn't actually do this. It doesn't cross a boundary. It isn't dumped there and it isn't transported from from some other place. This is the point of emergence. It is where all human beings start. And just as natural man has taught us a lot about natural rights, natural human rights, natural woman also has something to to teach us about that. And since this is the beginning of human life, and we believe that rights, our natural rights are inherent in our humanity, then we can't ignore the fact that the point of origin is inside the mother's womb. So there's no there's no trespassing analogy to be had here, in which case we have to actually grapple with the question about, well, two things. Does the fetus have a negative right to not be aggressed against, which is Block and I are actually fairly consistent on. He believes that his position uh, does not endorse aggression. But then the, uh, the other question is whether or not the fetus actually has a right to occupy the womb, which tends to lean more towards, you know, the idea of positive rights and things mm-hmm. like that, which libertarians tend to get very nervous about for pretty obvious reasons. Okay, great. So let me let's just expand a little bit on that the the issue of of your you saying, look at the to try to compare the fetus to a trespasser and and lots of people. Let me back up. So I personally have problems with that analogy or that analysis from Block. And um, once I saw Ralph Rako also was get was gave him quite a stern criticism. We were at the Mises Institute and, and Walter had given his talk from the podium and and Rako was in the in the audience and was not too happy with it. But, and and so I've heard people or I've thought of things like saying, well, wait a minute, Walter, even in libertarian land, I'm not sure like if if you're on a, a transatlantic voyage and the crew discovers some stowaway, like some 12-year-old kid who snuck on board, I don't think you can just chuck him overboard. Right. You know, like I think that would be illegal even if, you know, all the regions of the world were run under anarchy, capitalist legal systems and whatnot. I, I don't think that would be legal. And certainly you would think if some two-year-old had been, while he was sleeping, someone chucked him over into the ship and the kid had no, you know, volition and was not involved in any way, you would think it's not merely that, hey, yeah, sure, you have the legal right to toss the two-year-old overboard, but just we ask you not to do that because it's not the right thing to, you know. Right. You, you would think that, no, I think it probably actually would be illegal. And, and you can yeah. imagine all sorts of nuances, like, well, what if a thousand people had snuck on board and there's not enough food then you could imagine, all right, yeah, you got to kick them off to, you know, so there, there are constraints and, and interesting things. But what I liked about what you were saying is it's, you're objecting to the trespass analogy at step one saying, no, the, the fetus did not start somewhere else and then enter the woman's womb. Right. It began its existence there. And so if we're going to use analogies of like finding somebody in your kitchen, it would be like, what if all human beings always started in some stranger's kitchen. Right, exactly. And then, <laughs> and then yeah. and that's just where people came from. And maybe that would change your understanding of real estate law. Right, yeah, exactly. So then is it true that in your case or, or for your position, it actually is important to know when does human life begin? And, and you can't just brush that aside the way that like Walter Block or Murray Rothbard wanted to. Yeah, so it it is incredibly important, I think. And a lot of 
you know, a lot of the philosophical arguments, even on the, or especially on the pro-choice side, is to just sort of, to grant for the sake of argument that, you know, human life begins at conception. And Bloch actually says that, you know, life begins at fertilization. And I think it's very important for us to be precise in the science, especially since that science is available to us. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it's, it's very easy to say that life begins at the moment of conception. We hear this phrase from pro-lifers all the time, the moment of conception. And the reality is, is that conception is about a three-day process. It begins with fertilization. And during that, that three days, it goes through something called the maternal zygotic transition, which is where the basically where the zygote takes over um, and controls from that point forward. What they found is that um, for, for human embryos in particular, that at the end of conception, at the end of this process, uh, the zygote is autonomous and self-organizing and is the one who directs development. So although we wouldn't say that the zygote has consciousness or anything like that or any of the elements of you know, what Mises would call human action, mm-hmm. it does have direct and immediate control, which is something that, that Rothbard said was necessary for self-ownership. And of course, it's a human, and that's, that's the other condition that the Roth, Rothbard argued was necessary for self-ownership. So those two things obtain as soon as the process of conception is complete. Now, it's important that that process be complete because if it's not complete, you don't ever have a human being. You don't have... Um, the zygote never takes over. It just, there's, there's plenty of times where sperm and egg come together, they fertilize and the process never completes and you never get a human being. So I think it's important to be precise in that. So Mm -hmm. I always say that life begins, um, at the completion of conception, because that is the moment where mom's body isn't in control of, of development. Mom's body is in control of, um, the biological processes now taking place in the zygote. The zygote's in, in control of that. Can you elaborate a bit more on what exactly you mean? Because from one level of analysis, it's like, oh, the laws of physics are always just operating. So what does it mean Like, if you're watching a movie of the development of this entity inside the mother's body? That What does it mean to say, oh, oh right here, the mother's in control, but oh, now this is in control. Like, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, in this case, the genetic material has quite a bit to do with um, passing on instructions to the cell. So an unfertilized egg has genetic instructions from the mom to, you know, basically to receive a sperm cell and then close itself off once, Mm -hmm. once that's done. During this process, though, the genetic material has to merge between father and mother. And so the instructions that are happening uh, in the maternal element of the cell start to taper off and the, the genetic instructions for the zygote start to take over. It's sort of like okay. an, an inverse relationship you might think of it as. Okay. So to the extent that we can speak of, oh, like the cell's DNA tells it what to do, like mm-hmm. to the extent that that's a meaningful statement, you're saying, well, clearly if you have a fertilized egg at some point, then you know, it's, it's, it's not the mother's DNA anymore. It's the, the new, right. Uh, what will eventually be the fetus's DNA that's given the instructions. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's actually, there, there are scientific studies which, um, show that this takes place 
outside of the womb as well. So they've, mm. they've found that this, this happens, um, you know, in, in the Petri dish. So we know for certain that it's not the mother who's directing development of the fetus or any of these other stages. It really is the zygote. It's, it really, it, it really does demonstrate autonomy, biological mm. autonomy, and it is self-organizing and it does drive its own development. Like the, um, the first thing that it does aside from starting to split is, um, it moves, you know, into the womb such that it can implant in the lining of the uterus and that it immediately goes to work building the placenta and the umbilical cord. Well, what is that? Well, that's shelter and food supply. Mm-hmm. And this is all driven, this is all driven by baby. And we know it's baby be, because it's baby's DNA. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's those activities taking place are really important to to understand and distinguish between, you know, mom's body and and baby's body. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe we can circle back. So you had mentioned, I believe you were saying that you and Walter are agreed that if the fetus were could be removed and be viable outside the womb, then you you agree that a woman legally in a free society should be able to have that procedure done? Yeah, I think I think that's the case for sure. Okay. Yeah. So so then again, let me be the agnostic libertarian here. So if if that's true, so you're agreeing then that the fetus or young baby, you know, whatever term you want to use is, um, does not have the right to compel the mother to carry the baby to, you know, regular term, but can, but can, you know, be forced to leave the womb at eight and a half months, let's say, and spend the last few weeks, um, you know, in a incubation unit at the hospital, then, um, what, if the baby doesn't have a right to that, then why would the baby have the right to, you know, the first six months? Yeah. So this is, this is where I argue that there's a positive obligation that is created between mom and baby. Um, and that is specifically one, a right to occupy the womb and to a right to at least food and shelter. I haven't seen any other reason to say that she's obligated to anything else. Where possibly where Black and I would disagree is is in the more technical details of what's going on, you know, in say an early de- delivery where you're you're passing off the baby to, you know, somebody else. Mm-hmm. In my view, what you're doing is actually emancipating or turning over your obligations to somebody else who's willing to take on those obligations, and so it's not simply a matter of you know, once the baby reaches viability, you can kick it out. It's once the baby reaches viability, now you have the option to find a more suitable alternative if, you know, if you don't want to continue carrying it. But you are on the hook for making sure that, you know, whoever you're passing that off, the, the baby off to is going to provide those, those, basic, mm-hmm. those basic things. Yeah. So okay. it's probably a little bit nuanced, but, you know. Okay, so and and again, forgive the possible crassness of this, but I'm I'm trying to use analogies of things where sure. libertarians are fine. So, just like if somebody owns a company and the company has some assets like a factory and land or whatever, but it also has liabilities that it it borrowed mm-hmm. money from various people and they have bonds issued by this company. You, as the owner and standard libertarian legal theory, are allowed to sell that company to somebody else for a sum of money. Sure, but they don't just get the assets, and then the 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 bondholders are left you know, without it, you know, a leg to stand on. If, if you're 
transferring the company itself, then the assets and the liabilities go over. So that yes, you get the factory and the land if you're the new buyer, but you also inherit all of the legal responsibilities. Namely, you got to you know pay the bondholders what they're owed. Yeah. So it, it's a similar thing. With you, you're saying that it's you as the mother of this developing baby, you know. You, you have certain legal rights actually as as the parent mm-hmm. that will you know manifest itself down the road but also you have obligations or duties and so you can transfer that whole package to somebody else at the moment that that transfer becomes feasible right yeah in fact i would even say that you know in in terms of ownership property ownership that sort of thing um, women are an owner of a means of production. It mm-hmm. happens to be the ultimate means of production because we have the ability to produce new humans. Our desire to not produce new humans is naturally limited when a new hu- human is produced inside of us. Sometimes that happens due to our own planning. Sometimes it happens accidentally. Sometimes it happens um, as a matter of rape. Mm-hmm. But it does, in fact... Uh, regardless of any of those situations, it does create natural limitations on the woman. Um, she should have a right to, to. I mean, I don't want to use the word sell, but she she has a right to find new parents mm-hmm. for the baby, right? That's That's what's within her natural limitations. She doesn't have a right to aggress against it because the baby has negative rights, um, you know, freedom from interference in that way. The baby was also brought into this world um, against its own will and choice. And in any other circumstance, when things are done against us, that creates a proprietary interest where, you know, you might have a duty or an obligation or owe them something. I think that does create a positive obligation on the mother's part to at least find somebody else to provide those things for the baby. So yeah, I think we we can definitely speak about it in in terms of property and you know those those economic terms that we employ. Hey folks, just a quick note: if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com/slash/contribute. I thank you in advance. Okay, maybe now's a good time. Let's expand a little bit on this issue of positive versus negative rights, and because again, in standard libertarian framework, usually we're real squeamish about alleged positive rights. So let me just remind, or perhaps for the first time, tell the viewers, uh, you know, that background context so they can understand why when it comes to the abortion issue, somebody like Rothbard or Block would, you know, think they were on pretty strong ground by saying, look, you can't have positive rights. So normally folks, um, like if, if, uh, you know, FDR or somebody is talking about, you know, people have right to healthcare or to economic security, and a standard libertarian response saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what rights are. You can't have a right to health care, for example, or a right to education, because then that means in order for your right to not be violated, somebody else has to do something for you. Like somebody else has to be a doctor and perform services for you, or someone has to be a teacher and teach you how to read. And so, you know, it doesn't make sense. You can't compel other people. What, what if no one wants to be a doctor? Then how can you have a right to health care? Whereas you can have like a right to free speech, meaning the government needs to refrain from using violence to stop you from disagreeing with the president or something, right? So, um, or, you know, a a right. So there's things like that, or or just property rights in general. Oh, I have a right to use cocaine in standard libertarian theory. So that means somebody can't use violence to stop me from using cocaine. They might, you know, tell me I'm being immoral and whatever, and my family can disown me, but they can't use 
force to stop me from doing it. That would violate my rights. And so th- those are negative rights that your right to property and so forth, or your right to free speech vis-a-vis the government means other people can't stop you from doing things. So it's re- it's restricting what they can do to you. Whereas a positive right means I can compel other people to do things for me. Like again, the right to healthcare or education or housing or something. And so that's why libertarians typically, if someone says there's a right to housing, they don't just say, oh, well, no, look at the economic incentives. They say, no, you're misunderstanding what rights are. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so now with all that as a context, Carrie, and and let me just mention where it sort of gets dicey is, well, gee, what if I'm walking by the pond and somebody tripped and fell in and they're drowning and all I have to do is just reach out my hand and help them onto shore do I have to do that legally or can I just walk by? So of course, with all this stuff, you could be a jerk yeah. and everyone says you're immoral, but the question is, could you be prosecuted for some, you know, some sort of crime if you re, if you withheld assistance to somebody um, in a situation like that? And so again, some libertarians might come down one way or the other on that, but that's, you know, that's a good example of somewhere where even some libertarians might agree, okay, yeah, you do have a positive duty in that circumstance to lend assistance. Okay, so with that context now, Carrie, can you just talk a little bit more about the abortion issue? And yeah. When, like, again, so Walter Blockerson would say, you know, we feel bad for the fetus who, you know, will be a, a standard baby nine months from now or six months, whenever the, the decision is, but you cannot compel a woman to do something against her will. So the issue isn't whether it's a person or not. The issue is, does the woman own her body or not? And if she does, then you can't force her to do something with her body that she doesn't want to do, period. Right. So I think I think the key issue here is that, number one, a woman who gets pregnant, even accidentally, she's not being forced to carry a baby. In order to say that she's being forced, you would have to say that the baby is actually initiating force against the woman. And the baby isn't, isn't even actually in a position to to be taking any kind of action as we understand human action in a libertarian sense. And the reality is, is that conception, that process of conception is the consequence of an action that she took earlier or that may have been done against her as in the case of rape. But let's take the volitional situation first. If she chooses to have sex, she has the possibility that the, the resulting consequence can be getting pregnant. So we're not looking at any use of force here. We're looking at a natural consequence of her choice to have sex or not. Now, she can try to mitigate the uh, the possibility that conception will occur, as in, you know, by by using contraceptives of, of various kinds. But none of those are foolproof. So she has to make risk assessments, right, and and make decisions accordingly. And we all know that, you know, you might you might take a risk thinking that you can avoid the you know the the negative consequences of it and then find that oops you you failed to to avoid those consequences there's no reason in the world why a woman should be free from the consequences of her choices so you know again i don't think that the analogy really works in comparison to a person that fell into a lake and you had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. I think there's certainly an argument for an ethical duty, but we aren't talking about legal duty. I do think that the reason why, and libertarians are right to get squeamish about the idea that the government can create positive rights. 
and if I'm if I'm correct about my view about the relationship between the woman and the fetus, the reason why the state cannot create positive obligations is because there's no proprietary there's there's no proprietary interest between the state and people. We don't have a duty or obligation inherent to the state in that way, so they can't actually create it. But there are positive obligations implied by the fact that she's taken an action. There's a resulting consequence that the child had no choice in, no will in of their own. And so they are they are owed something as a result of that, which which I think is just, you know, basic food and shelter or finding a suitable alternative. Does that answer your question? Sure. Yeah, I think so. And then so, okay. So then the next obvious question is, okay, but what in but in situations where the woman was not voluntarily going along with actions that resulted in pregnancy, what, what, you know, how do you analyze that? Yeah. So in the case of rape, this is really important because, you know, we're told, women are told that if you are raped, part of the mode of justice or being, you know, restored to your previous state is to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. And it's all on the basis of you shouldn't be forced to to carry this this baby. And again, I ask who's actually doing the force? Who's who's taking the who's initiating force in that situation? If we take the state out of the picture entirely, you know, use our our Robinson Crusoe thought experiment and you're you're just on an island, there's a man and a woman and she is raped by a man. The one forcing her to carry a baby is the man that raped her. It's not the state it's not the baby. And so all of the reasons that are presented to women as reasons why abortion needs to exist um, in the case of rape are actually all the rights violations that the rapist has committed against both mom and baby. Rape is also the first act of child abuse in that, in that situation. So we're actually denying women justice. Um, I call abortion crumbs from the crumbs from the table of justice because, uh, she's not actually getting the restitution and recompense that she's owed for the fact that a rapist has actually initiated this this process against her will. Rape, I think, is if we understand the rights of the fetus, we actually absolutize both fetal rights and, and by extension, women's rights as well. What we typically think of rape is that it's just non-consensual sex. But if we understand that sex leads to this process of conception, which is the production of a new human with rights, then rape is actually much more akin to war on the body. Mm -hmm. It's war on the individual. It's invasion. It's usurpation. It's enslavement. And not to put too fine a point on it, but the pull pull out means leaving the victim with, you know, hanging with with all of the, the consequences, both intended and unintended. So... Um, but that can only come, that perspective of rape can only come when we absolutize fetal rights. And then it actually raises the salience of the crime of rape to where it ought to be, which is, at least in terms of restitution, might be the most expensive crime that, uh, that somebody could commit. So I think that those advocates on the pro-choice side who are saying women need to have access to abortion in the case of rape are doing a disservice to women um, in in not recognizing what's really going on because 
then the focus is on the baby and the rapist gets to slip out the back door. And, and in many cases in our current justice system, it's, it's relatively easy to get away with a crime of rape. Um, and I think it's because abortion is such a, an, is such a prevalent and common solution to that problem. Okay, well, let me make sure I understand what your actual position is before I ask mm-hmm. for elaboration. So in a free society, um, you know, where the judges are ruling according to standard precepts that we would, you know, they wouldn't necessarily say, hey, I'm a libertarian, but like we as libertarian theorists, you know, would look at that society and say, ah, yes, this is largely in accord with libertarian philosophy, let's say. Mm-hmm. Do you, so number one, do, do you think that there would be a a system of law enforcement that uses the threat of violence? Because I really, like, for I know you're a pacifist. I mean, so I'm a pacifist, but... Yeah. So, like, in other words, so someone robs a bank, do you think armed people can go and take them down and put them in a cage? I'm just trying to, like, see where you're coming yeah, from first. So I don't want to assume I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily categorize myself as a pacifist, and I've, okay. I've definitely heard your, your arguments um, concerning that. You know, I've done my own research into the way that violent crime is is dealt with in in our own society. Mm-hmm. You know, we use things like like prison, we use harsh sentencing. We've got this this concept of tough on crime. Mm-hmm. And what the data shows is that there's no there's really no deterrent effect, doesn't have uh, a positive effect on recidivism rates and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, what I have read though is that tort law does have a deterrent effect. And so even though our moral outrage about rape, you know, or even abortion might lead us to, well, you know, you need to have the book thrown at you and, you know, throw you in a a cell and lock away the key and, and, and all of that. The question really needs, that needs to be asked is what's going to produce the deterrence and the tough on crime mode of enforcement doesn't actually do that. So in that case, my my position is much more of a tort position. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I can I can also say this. I I also believe, I mean, obviously, if we are saying that the fetus has rights from the moment conception is complete, that would make abortion also illegal. And so one of the one of the modes of restitution, shall we say, that I think is possible and viable in the case of an abortive woman is the concept of restorative justice. Free the People did a little documentary on that concept. Obviously, I don't think that the state should do restorative mm-hmm. justice because it can get dr- draconian, but I think it's perfectly viable in a in an anarchic um, society. So yeah, when it comes to something like rape, I think tort is the way to go. And when it comes to abortion, I think restorative justice is the way to go. Okay. So if I'm understanding you, um, cause, cause yeah, you anticipate where I was going. I wanted to first of all, start with something that most people recognize as an obvious crime, like someone robbing a bank with a gun. And then we say, yeah. okay, if anybody's going to prison, it's that kind of a person or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a serial killer or what have you. And then I was going to try to because before when you said, well, who's using the force against the woman who's considering getting an abortion, the obvious pro-choice or even Walter Blockian evictionism response is going to be, well, whatever, if you carry are saying you don't think abortion should be legal, then 
whatever's mechanism the, the justice system uses or the legal system yeah. uses to restrain criminals, that's what we're talking about. And, you know, unless you're a pacifist, they have guns and cages. And so the, what, do you, right. what do you mean? So, th- so that's why I realized as I was about to ask you that I wasn't actually sure what you thought should happen to a woman who is found to have had an abortion. If, if you're saying you don't think technically that should be legal the way that opening up a pizza shop is legal, that you're saying there no, there'd right. be different legal responses to those actions. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I would say, you know, the the conventional debate centers around the the question of whether legal enforcement will actually mitigate or prevent the practice of abortion. And so that's where things get pretty muddy because now we're talking about now we're talking about human action and mm-hmm. the reason why women seek out abortion services to begin with. And predominantly, the reason why women seek out abortion services are because of poverty and bad relationships, you know, usually some sort of abusive or or toxic relationship. So when it comes to answering the question, how do we actually end the practice of abortion? That's where I start to get more into the economics of things. Mm -hmm. And so I see the pro-choice and pro-life side really more as a division of labor where the pro-choice side is motivated to find products and services that will uh, prevent unwanted pregnancies. And the pro-life side is uh, trying to find products and services that respond, you know, that that are a response, a life-affirming response to unwanted pregnancy when it occurs. So, you know, that's really, that side of it, the economic side of it is really what's going to deal with, as far as women are concerned, their choice, mm-hmm. right? Their their choice to take a pill or not, or their choice to go to an abortionist or not. That all comes down to economic factors. The enforcement thing doesn't actually, like I said before, it doesn't actually produce a deterrence. I mean, even the Texas law right now that's that that was passed, uh, which is interesting since they took the civil route instead of the crim- criminal route. But uh, we have reports here in New Mexico that women are, you know, crossing over the, the state border to have abortions here. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to believe that criminalization wouldn't create a a black market, especially if the mode of enforcement is much more authoritarian, tough on crime sort of sort of things. And so, you know, to come back to, well, what do you do? When in an anarchic situation, you know that I'm I'm conceptualizing here, where a woman you know breaks the law and has an abortion. The reason why I like this, the restorative justice model is because that model it is already prepped with helping that woman figure out how to not get herself in that position again, right? So, you know, it might be teaching her something about, you know, money and budgeting so that she can get out of poverty. It might be something about uh, teaching her how to identify toxic relationships so that she doesn't re-enter another abusive relationship. That restorative justice model is not only giving her the tools to keep herself out of that position, but it's helping her realize why that decision was a bad decision to begin with. And in that model, there's less of an incentive for for the the perpetrator, if you will, to avoid or try to um, 
you know, do everything in the power in their power to get away with what they did. They're incentivized to embrace the fact that they they screwed up um, and that there's a way forward and a way out of it. Um, and again, the restorative justice model, if you watch the, the documentary that Free the People did, they found a, a huge, or I should say, they have found that the recidivism rates for those, those crimes that they do res- restorative justice for drop drastically. So if we're talking about ending the practice of abortion, there's an economic element to it, but there's also this, this element in, in restorative justice where we actually reduce recidivism. Um, I don't see how using a tough on crime model will actually resolve that problem. It just incentivizes trying to work around and get around it. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, you remind me when I was a student at Hillsdale College, Harry Brown was running for president and he came by. And so he would, I think you would classify his position as pro-choice. And so, you know, Hillsdale, there was a lot of uh, Christians in the, in the audience and they were skeptical. And so someone asked him about a board and I thought he handled it in a sort of glib way that was cute is he said something like, well, my view is if you leave preventing abortion up to the government, pretty soon men will be getting abortions. And, <laughs> and that was a laugh line at the time. Of course, nowadays, you know, advocates of, you know, abortion would say, yes, men can get abortions. What, you know, what are you talking or, about? Uh, yeah. be a transfer. Yeah. Um, so, so that sounds like what you, what you're getting at. So it, is this correct, Gary? You're actually not necessarily, you know, advocating that armed law enforcers go around hunting down women who have had abortions and and using punitive measures against them, but you're not comfortable with like Walter Block and other conventional pro-choice libertarians and their discussion of the property rights and philosophy behind what may be a society that actually doesn't throw the book at a woman who's had an abortion. So you just want to clarify philosophically and ethically and the, the conceptual framework, but actually in practice, there might not be that huge of a difference between the way society unfolds in your vision versus like Murray Rothbard's. Yeah. So I think number one, you know, I, I have actually heard pro-life figureheads like uh, the the one I'm thinking of right now is his name is Scott, Scott Klusendorf. And he's explicitly said that a war on abortion would lo- would look like the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I have never had an abortion. I can't imagine ever seeking an abortion, but that scares the hell out of me mm-hmm. because we have seen how <laughs> I thought you were going to say, on- but I have had drugs and let me tell you, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah. You know, we, we've seen with the war on drugs, how they it, how easy it is to go after innocent people violate their rights and then just be like oops sorry my mm-hmm. bad and i think it's really important for for pro lifers especially to understand what it is that they are saying when they want to use these these authoritarian modes of enforcement in order to prevent a woman from having an abortion. And I think honestly, this, this whole situation with COVID-19 has, has created the perfect analogy because when the, ob- when the object of state interest resides or potentially resides in, inside of you, your body, then suddenly you disappear. Mm-hmm. Your rights disappear. Every, like you become completely secondary. So, you know, I do think in the situation that I am imagining, you would definitely have 
you know, abortion would be illegal. It would be equivalent to, to, to murder, mm-hmm. right? It would be murder. How we enforce that, right? You have the, the legal rights side of the philosophy, but then you have the legal enforcement side of the philosophy. And I am definitely opposed to the authoritarian enforcement of abortion prohibition. I think that there are better ways to go about doing that. And I want to take seriously the economic side of, of the whole question when it comes to how do we actually end the practice of abortion. So, yeah, did that answer your question or was yeah. there another part? Um, I... Yeah, I, th- I think it, yeah, it answered. And okay. so, yeah, that, it dovetails kind of with my own perspective too that when people hear that I'm a pacifist, they assume that I don't believe in property rights. And I'd say, no, all the more so, mm-hmm. I think my view trumpets property rights because I'm saying, no, it's really important just to know the fact of the matter, is that person a thief or not? Mm-hmm. And society needs to know that. And then it's a secondary matter. Are we going to do something violently to the person because of that? But no, first and right. foremost, is that person in the right or not? And to me, that's, whereas you might, you may have seen this carry on, on I sort of pushed back a little bit. Sometimes people will say things like, your rights only exist insofar as you're willing to use force to defend them. And I would say, no, that actually throws out the concept of rights altogether. You're saying whoever has the most powerful gun gets to do what they want. Like, that's kind of goofy to me. So, um, okay, so that's, again, I I know you're not necessarily a pacifist, but it does sound like your position is probably not what a standard pro-choice libertarian thought it was when they heard you originally were not. not. yeah. Yeah, okay. And then I was going to ask you, and it sounds like you you anticipate this a little bit, that I, I, I gathered from your remarks at the Soho Forum that you are not um, endorsing the standard like American evangelical pro-life movement necessarily. Yeah, no, I, I'm not. In fact, my... <laughs> The, the very first podcast episode that I put out on abortion was a criticism of the pro-life movement. Mm-hmm. And... In fact, if your if your listeners want to hear it, it's called how the how the pro life movement is aborting a pro life era, and in that I referenced a study um, about that that studied how the pro life movement operates, and it's very dis, disjointed, disconnected. They don't work the they they don't actually work together. There are streams that have you know more of a, a militant view of of pro abortion prohibition. Um, to the point where they want to charge women with first degree murder and, you know, the death penalty, give them the mm-hmm. death penalty. Um, and then you have, you know, other streams that are more along the lines of crisis pregnancy centers, which I think are actually a wonderful economic response to to unwanted unwanted pregnancies. But it, like those two, those two elements of the pro-life movement fight with one another and mm-hmm. and you know, so it's it's a mess, and I don't think, you know, the other part of the evangelical or or conventional pro life uh, position is, well, we just need to get the right people in office, right? Mm-hmm. We need to elect more pro lifers. We need to get more pro life justices. We need to, and it's it's frustrating, especially because, um, and I did an episode with with LCI, their LCI roundtable, about all the Supreme Court cases dealing with abortion. And if you look at it, the vast majority of decisions made by the Supreme Court that favor legal abortion were done by Republican-appointed justices. So it doesn't... I I think that the conventional pro-life movement has failed. And Mm -hmm. they need to to reevaluate what it is they're doing. The other thing that they do is 
their goal is to rid the world of unwantedness, right? They want to, they want women to want their babies. They mm-hmm. want women to want to be pregnant. And that's not possible. In fact, it's good that that there are women who recognize when they don't want to be pregnant or they don't want kids because that is them making decisions about their own bodies and and making decisions accordingly in how they they live their life. And we need that. We we need women to be making conscious decisions about what they want to do with their bodies or not. So, you know, I think the the conventional pro-life view really needs to reevaluate what they're they're doing. They need to recognize uh, the rights that women do have. So I'm a huge advocate of bodily autonomy and agency for for women. That's something that conventional pro-lifers like to throw out the window. So yeah, I'm I'm different from both camps in many ways, and mm-hmm. I also share concerns from both camps in many ways. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and also I don't I don't know if you mentioned this, but I'm sure you've seen like the protesters who like hold up really graphic pictures of, you know, like, like as women are walking into the clinics and saying, this is, uh, and mm-hmm. that always rubbed me the wrong way. Whereas, you know, ones who are standing and saying, Hey, have you reconsidered? And, you know, there's, we've, here's some literature and, you know, yeah. we, we have help and counseling down the road and if you need assistance and then, you know, like to me, that seems a lot more effective and, you know, not as. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, <laughs> I remember way back in college, I did actually um, participate in some of those more militant protests, mm-hmm. um, and it, it, they don't work. It's it's just like you know, it's it's just like all the clickbaity stuff that we see on mm-hmm. the internet that's that's made to rile you up, right? It doesn't actually start a conversation. It it starts things off on the wrong foot. When it comes to actually trying to pers- persuade a woman to not abort who's who's seeking that out, one of the best things that can be done is to help her in practical ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I love the crisis pregnancy centers. Crisis pregnancy centers actually outnumber the, the, the number of abortion clinics in America. There are more crisis pregnancy centers than abortion clinics. And many of them offer services, you know, much more than just, you know, here we can point you to an adoption agency a lot of them provide actual, you know, supplies, medical services. I've even heard of crisis pregnancy centers where uh, lawyers work pro bono in order to help women out of abusive situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Planned Parenthood, as much as they rail against the patriarchy and how women are treated, they don't provide women legal resources for getting out of those situations. Um, but crisis pregnancy centers can, and some of them do. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me, especially when we can see from the data that the reason why women seek abortion are poverty and bad relationships, those are things that are resolvable. Um, and we don't have to use violence mm-hmm. to resolve mm-hmm. it. So Yeah. And, you know, for though, and I know there are some people either hearing this or just in general who would say like, well, no, if it's, if it's murder and, and Carrie and, you know, Murphy seem to agree that it is, well, you know, go ahead and get in their face and these murder and, I would just say, again, like you're saying, Carrie, it, I don't think that militant approach works. And it'd be like if you were in a bank, you know, you're waiting in line to make a deposit or something, and then bank robbers come in and they lock down the bank, you know, they got their ski masks on and shotguns and so forth. And then, you know, the police surround the building and the hostage negotiator comes out and he's talking to this guy who's, you know, pacing back and forth who could shoot any of you, you know, as your hostages. Do you want the negotiator to say, you know, 
you criminal, let me show you pictures of, of the cell you're going to be in. Right. You know, yeah. or do you want him to say, okay, we want to talk, we want to work with you. Now, what are your goals here? What can we do to help you out? Let's get through. Let's, let's calm down. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, that's yeah. so no one's denying that the bank robber's breaking the law, but the issue is if you're trying to get the hostages out alive, then right. you want to, you know, calmly negotiate with the person, not just yell at them and swear at them and stuff and call them a killer. Yeah, well, and as morally outrageous as abortion is, moral outrage is not a substitute for justice and it's not a substitute for compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for for pro-lifers in particular to come to grips with because it's very easy to just... I mean, it's hard for me to conceptualize as a woman how I could possibly entertain the idea of killing my own fetus. Um, I get that. I get that there's a huge disconnect and people don't understand that. At the same time, what is going to be effective? Mm-hmm. It's not moral outrage. Right, right. Okay, um, if then if you don't mind, Carrie, one last uh, topic here is, like I said, I, I want to also come at this from the perspective of a non-libertarian Christian who's may say like this whole focus, like look at the knots you guys tie yourselves into when you start talking about self-ownership. No, God owns everything. If you want to talk like that and you're merely stewards of his property. And so you don't own yourself. What are you, what are you talking about? That's disgusting. And you, that, first of all, that that's false. And also you wouldn't be happy. Like, no, you don't, right. you, you can't go and become a you know a drug addict. You can't go kill yourself like as, as a Christian, you know, mm-hmm. th- that's off limits. And so this notion of self-ownership, like look at, look at the depravity into which you get driven if you start with that fundamental premise as you libertarians do. So doesn't this just prove that libertarianism is wrong? And as a Christian, Carrie and Murphy, you should, you, you should know that. So how would you respond to that sort of critique? Yeah, so I acknowledge that we are stewards before God. I would say we, uh, God has given us a self-stewardship, which means that we're responsible for our life. We are responsible for making decisions about our life. We've been given agency, which means that we have the capacity to actually think through and, and make those decisions. It's in relation to our fellow human beings that we own ourselves right? Because nobody else can, can claim ownership over me. And I'll even, I'll even up the ante one more because a lot of Christians want to say, well, you know, if, if you're a woman, you're supposed to be having babies. You're supposed to be Mm -hmm. getting married and, and having as many babies as possible and doing what your husband wants and things like that. And I, I do have to push back on that and say, look, scripture doesn't actually say that a woman doesn't get to have a choice over her body. In fact, the first incidence of slavery in scripture is Lamech taking wives. It was it was marriage that got distorted as slavery. And there are plenty of examples in scripture where women are treated very badly, treated as property, and that that's shown as as bad examples. And then when Christ comes, Christ is acknowledging the individual, uh, you know, the woman as an individual. He's, even when it comes to the, the accusations of, of the prostitute, right? He's looking at all of those Pharisees saying, if you are without sin, then cast the first stone, right? So I don't think that scripture bears out at all that a woman doesn't own herself or doesn't have agency. There's, there is a question about whether women can, for example, be raped in marriage. 
Uh, there are some Christians who don't believe that marital rape is a real thing. And so there's certainly disagreement and and conflict on that issue. But I absolutely believe that self-ownership is a gift from God, that my agency is a gift from God. That's part of being um, an image bearer of God. And that neither marriage nor sex nor any of those other things, making babies actually negates that. If anything, if anything, the reason why women have agency and bodily autonomy is so that she can make decisions about you know, everything from whether or not to get married to whether or not to have children and even how to actually carry out her pregnancy and raise her children. And so I think it's it's very important from a Christian perspective that we acknowledge self-ownership and, and agency. Okay, so I think and then it follows pretty easily from your remarks there that somebody who would think like a, a, a secular libertarian who would think that, oh my gosh, these American Christians who like literally believe the Bible, that would set up like a handmaiden's tale of the, of the world view where the wives are submissive to their husband. And, and you're saying, no, that you, you disagree with that. You think actually your freedom is through Christ and yes. not just in a metaphysical sense, but also like on this planet. Right. Well, and the interesting thing about the handmaid's tale analogy is that women are, sub- are submissive to the state first. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that all of the pro-choice, all the all the pro-choicers want to uphold Roe v. Wade as being the thing that is standing in between women and a handmaid's tale scenario. But what Roe v. Wade actually says is that a woman's bodily autonomy and agency in pregnancy is is subject first to state interest. So Roe v. Wade actually sets up the possibility for a handmaid's tale. It just happens to be right now that or uh, you know free access to abortion is within the state's interest but as soon as the state is interested in you know making more people for their for their workforce or whatever guess what's going to change the abortion law um and Roe v Wade makes that possible i do not believe and this is an ongoing debate within christian circles but i do not believe that marriage negates the self-ownership and agency of, of wives. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and I don't count myself as a feminist or a Christian feminist or anything like that, but I find nothing in scripture that actually indicates that a woman loses any sort of uh, rights over her body or her agency when she gets married. If that were true, then Christian marriage would have to be bad for women. And that contradicts scripture. And so that can't be true. So, you know, that is that is definitely an ongoing bait in conservative Christian circles, but I definitely hold the line that marriage does not negate a woman's rights or agency. Okay. Um, just one follow-up on that. So I confess, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever actually read the, you know, Roe v. Wade decision. So you're saying that it it, it was not arguing that, oh, yes, yeah, so a woman's right to do what she wants with her body is inviolable, which by the way, it couldn't be because then where would vaccine mandates go and how could we possibly conscript women into the armed forces if, you know, if that's really what Roe v. Wade, but you're saying the the actual thrust of the ruling was the state has an interest in this and in the state's interest, women should not, you know, states and other localities should not be able to infringe on their right to get an abortion. Yeah, so there's a tension. There's a tension between the woman's liter- liberty interest, insofar as not being pregnant, 
And that's where abortion comes in. And then there is the state interest in the health and viability of the fetus. So Roe v. Wade actually only technically legalizes abortion up to viability. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't legalize abortion past viability. uh, Planned Planned Parenthood versus Casey did that by, you know, broadening the definition of health concerns in the, you know, post-viability trimesters. But yeah, Roe v. Wade is is first and foremost about the state's interest in women and pregnancy and whether or not that extends to the fetus or not. And they determine that. Hmm. Okay, interesting. All right, well, that's probably a good spot for us to wrap up. Um, folks, my guest has been Carrie Baldwin. Um, for links on, I'll, I'll get links to her blog and, and her uh, podcast episode, and to the one she mentioned, Restorative Justice. And she's also a co-author of Faith Seeking Freedom, the book put out by the Libertarian Christian Institute that's answering the tough questions. For all those links, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 218. Carrie, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.